Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There's no second best crypto asset. There's a crypto asset. It's called Bitcoin, right? Right? There's no second best. Okay. Welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show with me, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it fundamentally different to every other crypto token in existence. I've seen firsthand how crypto really works, and my mission is to speak to the brightest minds on earth to help ordinary people distill crypto fact from fiction. Because as Lynn Olden says, and it's spot on, those that conflate Bitcoin and crypto simply don't understand either. All right, JP, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Yeah, super. Thanks so much for making the time. Um, yeah, I, I look up to you as one of the sort of OGs in the in the Aussie Bitcoin space. Um, I've been following. <laughs> yeah, man, I've been following you for a long time. Well, as long as I've been in Bitcoin, which actually will be three years next month, and feels like a lifetime. But I think in your case, it is. 13 years or something. Oh, effect. I wouldn't quite say that long. I better be careful about what I say too, probably or give too much away. But yeah, it's been a, <laughs> been a fair while. However, I say, that, I say that knowing that when I got in, I was looking at very much at the people that were around in much the same way. It seemed like, wow, what did I miss out on? How early were these other guys? Damn, I'm kicking myself for being late. But uh, yes. as uh, Knut said over the weekend, we're all early. We are all early. Um, look at perhaps you. for the listeners' sake there, JP, um, if you could just give us a little brief intro as to kind of who you are um, and then afterwards you can talk a little bit about your sort of Bitcoin journey. Obviously, my name's JP. I've been involved as, let's just say, oh, I don't want to go too specific, but let's just say I've I've uh, been involved in Bitcoin for, oh, it must be getting on for almost 10 years now. Um, I suppose you could say I was one of the people that came in the class of 2013. So... And that wasn't a great time to get into Bitcoin because it was already a sort of a very much a sort of pumping market, which, and if you got into Bitcoin at the end of 2013, you essentially had to deal with a very, one, probably what will still go down in history or continued to be the worst of the Bitcoin bear markets, uh, where it really wasn't clear, it wasn't certain back then, we couldn't take it for granted back then as to whether Bitcoin would recover. But as I said, I've been around the scene for pretty much all of that time. Um, there were Bitcoin meetups back in those days uh, because Bitcoin is all there was. We didn't have to sort of qualify it by saying Bitcoin only or anything like that. It was a Bitcoin meetup said it was Bitcoin. That's what you talked about. Uh, but obviously, and we'll go over this in the podcast, I'm sure. But as the years went by, that couldn't be taken for granted. And uh, and eventually, uh, I with I formed a new Bitcoin meetup with Stefan Levera and uh, another friend of mine called Harry. Where um, Stefan has obviously moved, uh, in, uh, is now working from overseas. But uh, I now am the main host of the Bitcoin Sydney meetup. So I suppose by Bitcoin relevance, for want of a better word, is running the Bitcoin Sydney meetup. And we meet twice a month. We have a a casual drinks meetup where people can just come to talk and network. And then we have another one that month. That would be the the second. So the fourth, the fourth Wednesday of the month is typically the drinks meetup I just mentioned. And the second Wednesday of the month is more of an organized speaking event. So we try to get someone interesting just from the Bitcoin community or a special guest, even as we've had from overseas or interstate uh, to, to present something on Bitcoin. 
And uh, I was just fortunately, um, recently fortunate enough to be a co-host, a co-MC of the Bitcoin Alive conference over the weekend. Absolutely. That was wonderful. Um, and we can perhaps chat about that a bit later. Let's let's just quickly jump into some of the things you were saying there, because you obviously got on at a relatively early stage, at least compared to me. And I'm wondering what it was about Bitcoin specifically that piqued your interest and then got you going down the rabbit hole? I mean, what was it? Was it the sound money <laughs> side of question, things? And yeah, look, that's, that is a great question. And I'll tell you what it was. So for me personally, I've always had a sort of interest in how things work, whether it be usually machines um, and processes, that sort of thing. And money, I think for many people is either is, well, I'd like to say it's it's one of the great mysteries that, that, that people rarely get a good explanation for, but that's usually because they don't question it. But I did question it and I did come across a few things, again, before I'd even discovered Bitcoin that attempted to explain what money was. And there were a couple of documentaries I watched that did a great job of it to the extent that the conclusion was that this is a giant scam. How, how can this... How can this be it? No wonder you're not taught about how the monetary system works, because if people really did understand, well, they wouldn't participate in it. They'd say, why would, why would I be part of this when I'm just essentially being, you know, farmed like a, like a, what's the, just like a surf on a farm to these people that actually are in the position of, of not only having established, but continue to run and control this. And I don't say that in a, in a conspiracy theory sort of way. You don't have to go completely down all of those sort of typical rabbit holes. This, um, it's, it's a simple fact of how the way the system works is that if someone came along now and proposed such a system, everyone would immediately laugh it off as being an unbelievable scam and that they wouldn't do it. But because it's the status quo, it's accepted. So, of course, knowing this, I was sort of fairly unsatisfied with that's the way things are. Anyway, I'd heard of this Bitcoin thing. This Bitcoin thing had popped up in the news and I suppose maybe first heard of it sort of, I may have heard of it earlier, but the first time I really remember hearing of it was in early 2013. I think it was the Cypriot banking crisis. And my initial reaction to it was scepticism, which is, I think, still reasonable if you're just top, if anyone um, presents to you an extraordinary claim, such as Bitcoin does, such as is the, cl the claims that are made for Bitcoin, then the default reaction should be scepticism. But that scepticism should disappear once the necessary extraordinary evidence is brought to bear to support it. Uh, but in my case, I initially dismissed it thinking, well, wh wh why is that any better? Like, oh, what's some money that just some, some immaterial tokens that someone could make up? Anyone could just make up the tokens. Unfortunately, these are objections that people still persist with today. Um, anyway, yeah. then it crashed and then I felt somewhat vindicated because it did because, oh, well, you know, I wasn't in. So, oh, good, you know, it crashed. <laughs> uh, and then... Uh, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> anyway, later in the year, obviously, it started to rise again and it was rising, rising, rising again. And I think I might have come across a post on Facebook by a guy who I'd met through uni. I don't I didn't know the guy very well. But what I did know about this guy is this guy was like extremely smart, almost on a almost in one of those um, on the spectrum know, type situation sort of spectrum type ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah. One of those. So, OK, wait a minute. If this guy's pushing it. It's got to be more to this. And so I, I started doing some Googling and started doing some reading. And uh, one of the early videos I came across was an Andreas Antonopoulos video and sort of where he, it's 
back then, again, there was no sort of, there wasn't the number of Bitcoin spokespeople and, 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 and figures and, and all of the educational resources we have today. No, what we had is this guy sitting at a dinner. It was at a big dinner table. I think it was known as the, the Jefferson Foundation dinner. And he's sitting at a dinner table and there's a whole lot of other people around it. But the, it's just a mobile phone camera propped up on the table pointing at him. And there's a few background questions being asked, but generally he's going over this whole way of explaining how you can have this monetary system without anybody in the middle. So that whole issue of thing I was thinking of whereby, oh, you know, a bunch of guys just, just basically make up some time. I thought of it like you might remember something like, and I think a lot of people originally thought of Bitcoin this way, like uh, I think there was Second Life. Telstra, I think Telstra or Tel Telstra had like a thing called Second Life. And so I just thought of it like second life money, money on a, on a, on a proprietary platform yeah. that's just being issued. But he went on to explain how the mining worked and how it, it, it decentralised consensus and how you had all the, all the stuff that you uh, were obviously going into the technical stuff with this answer. But the point was, is I suddenly realised, oh, well, okay, it's not that. This is actually something genuine, genuinely new, genuinely innovative and not innovative in that buzzword way that's used by the blockchain crowd, but actually innovative. Yes. Um, does this money, does money in a way that not only have we never been able to do before, but what many people thought was impossible to do before. Uh, so from that point, it was just like, okay, wow, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I, you know. Get, get my hands get, on some of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think, I mean, really what you're talking to is the sort of folly of fiat currency. The fact that mm. it's not really backed by anything, whereas Bitcoin is actually backed by actual energy and it's got a fixed supply and i think it was henry ford who said something along the lines of and i'll butcher the quote but if the ordinary person kind of knew how the banking system worked there'd be riots in the street the next day right because yeah. i think it's the i think the average person just doesn't have the faintest clue that the money and the digits in their bank account there's nothing there it's it's there's nothing fake. there and and what's even more surprising is given the role in which money plays in everyone's day-to-day -day life, I mean, it, it, there are a few things that factor into as many decisions as the, the monetary aspect. Exactly. Um, few, sorry, few, few things that factor into as many decisions we make than the monetary aspect of it does. And yet people, the vast majority of people still are completely incurious about, about what it actually is and how it works. Yeah, it's kind of baffling because... Like the way I've tried to explain it to ordinary folks who aren't really going down this rabbit hole, is I say, you know, I look at money as a proxy for my time. You know, we're not just earning money for the sake of it. It's mm. we're earning it, A, so that we can actually have a lifestyle. But B, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm earning today for my future self, um, you know. And I think the way that I'm looking at inflation then is to say that it's, it's time theft. And I guess that's how a lot of Bitcoiners would look at it and a lot of sound money advocates would look at it and say, if you've got a centralized authority that's effectively debasing the units that we use every day to exist and transact with each other, that's theft. And so well, it's, it's let's store energy in something that can't be debased. For, for sure, certainly, Dale. Dale and um, uh, It's more than theft, though, as well, in, in as much as that, once upon a time, I mean, my grandparents sort of, I was sort of still, I'm still, I guess, still old enough to have parents and grandparents that still had this idea that you should save up for what you wanted rather than putting it on credit. So this idea 
was yeah. still instilled in me that you would save money and then then and, and then the saved money would be used to buy the thing you wanted but of course if you tried to do that even if the money wasn't being arrayed and well sorry i was going to say that and also if you did that you would be rewarded for your deferral of gratification through the earning of interest but of course we haven't had that reward in any meaningful way for decades now. There's been very little interest paid on savings, certainly not enough to compensate you for the loss in purchasing power over, over time, and certainly not Absolutely. enough to make it worthwhile deferring your gratification. Um, That's exactly the problem, isn't it? So I suppose yeah. the rational thing to do in a debt-based fiat Ponzi scheme is to take debt, take up debt, and to spend today because... The whole adage of sort of saving money for a rainy day, you're kind of thinking, well, that well, money's just yeah, like a melting ice cube. Treated us that the, the people that were, and funnily enough, these are the people, the people that actually wanted to save their money for the, well, they were just treated as suckers. I said they were the suckers of the fiat Ponzi system, and yet these are the people, in a way, who you should, who, if climate change is to be taken seriously, and I have a tough time taking it seriously when the very same people that are pushing that. Don't seem to understand the benefit of that of of the of having a bunch of people like that who are willing to defer their gratification by not buying uh, by not making unnecessary consumption, yeah. and instead saving up for the future. Think of how that those sorts of people are have, would have a, a smaller carbon footprint than anybody. And yeah, think about are, how, how much bullshit is created in the world just in terms of consumable goods that have exactly a shelf life of for, twelve months. Yeah. And it's yeah. the sort of just literally, if you think about fast fashion, the stuff that yes. literally just yeah. gets worn for a season and gets What's chucked away. What's the carbon away? footprint of all of that? That you actually, and not only <laughs> are you dis dissuaded from uh, from uh, saving up your money so that you, instead of buying that, but you're actually encouraged to go out and spend and consume because if you don't, the Keynesian economic system upon which the present legacy financial system is based on depends on uh, permanent and ongoing economic growth in a finite world with finite resources, but it depends on this economic growth, which thereby depends on everybody uh, making potentially unnecessary expenditures. Absolutely. I think, you know, one Bitcoin of the doesn't need any of that. Bitcoin actually thrives the more people decide not to spend it. Yes. Exactly. And that's not a problem for Bitcoin's economy. That would be a problem in the Keynesian system. People say, oh, isn't, isn't deflation bad? Yeah, in your system it is. But in the Austrian economic system upon which Bitcoin is based, it's not a problem. Exactly. The, the way I've tried to relay it to people, um, if you were trying to make, it, make this issue a little bit more concrete, and this speaks specifically to Australians, would be think of what housing has done over the last, if you just even say three years, two years, or during COVID, Brisbane, where I'm based, let's say 44% growth within two years. Let's say you're the push schmuck who, and maybe you're earning a lot. Like maybe you're on a half a million, okay? And you're saving, let's say you can save a hundred grand, okay? You're getting like, what were you getting during that period? You're getting 2% from the bank. What would have been the more rational thing to do is to go and put down as little as you can yes. and speculate on property. And, yeah. and that's the reason what so many people have done and that pushes yeah. the property price up higher. Exactly. And it just exacerbates the problem. And then what they'll do is they'll say, oh, a bunch of people will be bleating. Oh, it's unaffordable. It's unaffordable. And they'll just find some other way to make it 
so-called well, more affordable about the unaffordable argument is that technically it isn't unaffordable as if people are buying it then it's ipso facto not unaffordable um <laughs> the problem is is that it's the wrong type of people buying the houses see when you don't have any other people too many people essentially are using housing essentially as a store of wealth or as a speculation tool but it's not unreasonable that they would seek such a speculation tool, given the fact that they just have to have their money in anything other than money in order to keep up with everybody else. So yes. whereas on a Bitcoin standard, suddenly things like houses no longer have to be used for that purpose. And so prices can come down relative to other goods and relative to labor because it'll just be left for the it'll just those houses, the same stock of houses will now just be left for the people that actually want to use them just as houses. Exactly. They're not going to have to compete anymore with all the people that want to use them as stores of wealth. 100%. Exactly. I mean, there's a whole thing happening even in, in many other countries where, in fact, I'm sure it happens here where people just buy property and they don't even care whether they rent it out at all. Even if it's chewing its head off with expenses, that is still preferable in many cases to it sitting in whatever other currency they might have had it in. So the China, sure. China is a classic case of that half of those uh, ghost cities are being bought up by investors who don't have anyone in them. But, hey, I own this apartment. It's sitting there. It's got some tangible value to it, unlike the fiat currency that they might otherwise be holding in their bank account. 100%. So you've described quite eloquently all of these problems with fiat and how Bitcoin solves it. And I guess for you and I, who've spent, you've probably spent tens of thousands of hours. Maybe I've just spent thousands of hours of, I don't know how many, but um, I guess for somebody who's new, who's sort of like, here's what you're saying, dipping their toes in, they might be like, okay, there's something interesting there, but how do you explain Bitcoin? Like, how do you typically explain Bitcoin to beginners, to somebody who's yeah. walking into this kind of blindly? So the, I think the most fundamental thing to understand is not even necessarily Bitcoin, first of all, but just understanding what money is. Once you can understand, once you explain to people what money is, then you explain to them, okay, well, that's we we can. And so I tend to, I tend to sort of distill or summarize an explanation for what money is. Is it's just a ledger, it's just a, essentially a way of recording in in societies, particularly in societies where you go past. I think it's is it Dunbar? Which number is it? It's it's is Dunbar's it, number. It's like 140. Dunbar's number. It is Dunbar's number, yeah, which yeah. is the number of interactions you can keep track of inside your head or the number of close friends you can have, something like that. Yes. In a small society, you could possibly get away without a very sophisticated form of money because it, it, you would almost be able to sort of keep a track of your obligations to each other inside your head. You'd remember, well, I did that guy that favour. He owes me this favour, you know, and I've yes. got this skill for that skill. So sort of barter systems like that. I've argued it. I argued, tried to sort of argue that even that is a form of money. It's just that the ledger is kept inside inside everybody's head. It's just a ledger again of yeah. who owes who what favor. Yeah. And that's all money really is, except it's doing it on a much more sophisticated level um, and on a vaster scale. It allows us to scale that out towards people we, we've perhaps never even met, and even to the extent of going across the world. And And so if you think of money that way, well, then if you have money, then the aggregate of the rest of society therefore owes you some goods and services. And if you have a debt, well, then you are still yet to perform those services or provide goods uh, in exchange for that which you've already taken from the aggregate of the rest of society. Uh, and so that, if you, if you distill it down, is what money is. Now, 
The next step is, well, how are those obligations, if you like, how are they recorded? And so we've had ways of recording those things before. Well, we could record it by essentially being in possession of a certain amount of a scarce thing like gold. Um, and so you could record that. People could have a certain amount of gold that represented that, that, that a quantification of that amount. Um, but again, that had its problems. That was cumbersome. Um, we, and again, the history of money, one of the interesting things about the history of money is because that was cumbersome, people would no longer hold the gold and they would instead deposit the gold with a money changer, which we would now call a bank, and you would be issued a certificate for the value of that gold. And so rather than cumbersomely trading the gold around, you could just trade in the certificates. But banks, of course, pretty soon realised that very few people ever went to recover their physical gold. So uh, instead of doing that, they, they realised that, okay, if only 10% of people are bothering to get their gold, I could probably get away with printing, you know, eight or 10 times as many actual gold certificates that there is actual gold to represent it. As long as we don't get a bank run, I'm good. And so... Um, but of course, occasionally there would be bank runs and the gold simply wasn't there to redeem everybody and they would be dragged by their hair. These bankers would be dragged by their hair and hung in the streets of whatever um, medieval city they lived in. But, uh, you know, that's that's that was fractional reserving was, of course, one of the was a was a was a capital crime. And now it's part of the course. Now it's just the way banking is done. We, we accept it and take it for granted. But the reasons had... that we apparent sorry. I just was going to say, I had no idea it was a capital crime. I, that well, that yeah, is I mean, brand new. It might, not have, it might not have been on the books as a capital crime. Oh, uh, yeah, not officially. It that way <laughs> by, the, by the general public. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, um, sorry to interrupt there. I just, I just had to say something. Yeah, so that's sorry. Why, anyway, that, I, 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 I think it's best to explain what money is first. And once you understand that it's just essentially a, a, a ledger of obligations, then you can think, all right, well, we've got this way of doing money, which is the fiat, the fiat money system that we have now, where you have this ledger that's kept on a central bank's computer or a, or a, number, of set, a number of bank central computers, and they're just digits in a computer and that those digits can be, be changed and that certain groups of privileged people that are at the middle of the system can essentially just change the, the digits and create more of these amounts of money. And that it also comes into existence whenever people take out loans. So this idea that whenever you borrow a loan, that it's somehow borrowed from existing depositors is nonsense. The money doesn't exist. It's created into existence at the time that the, that the loan is signed. And again, only banks have the privilege of being able to lend money at interest that they don't even own. So that's just some of the problems with the existing system. Now, imagine that you could have a system that, that came along and said, look, you can have the, all, of the all of the monetary properties of gold, which is, again, doesn't have those central parties, but without the, but without the cumbersome physicality of gold. And so now you've got the best of both worlds. Now you've got something that's digitally scarce. It can't be created. And most of all, I think this is a, a point that, I was surprised to hear was surprising to other people. And that was the fact that Bitcoin has no, it has no CEO as such. It doesn't have a marketing department. It's not a company. It's not a business. It's just, it's not even, it's not an, it's not an entity of which has any, any center that anyone can get at and change and manipulate or take control of. It's really just a protocol like the internet or rather more like TCP IP on the internet. Yes. Uh, but that's a big mind blow for people. This idea that 
you have all of these properties, yet now you do it with that a single human being or corporate entity of any kind being in the middle of it, issuing it or controlling it or with the power to change it. Um, and that you have this not only immutability of the ledger itself in terms of, so that is, in other words, the, um, the transactions that are on this ledger are unchangeable and fixed and uncensorable, but not only, but also the monetary policy. In other words, the limitation that, that, that the fact that there will only be 21 million Bitcoin that is immutable as well, unlike, well, I'm sure we'll get to this topic, but unlike other things that have tried There's to write. There's some C words. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you've described so well, so many of the things that I took quite a long time to put the pieces together, but it's the kind of thing that once you've actually seen how that system works, it's very difficult not to see it everywhere. And um, the idea that when you just, when you take out a home loan, that money, you're not borrowing it from anybody else. That money is literally just being created through a ledger entry. Um, mm -hmm. It's quite mind blowing, I think, to the, to the ordinary person. I think now you sort of, I think you've covered the topic of sort of what Bitcoin is and, and sort of why it matters. Um, I think one of the things that people often will go to straight away is they'll say it's highly volatile. People, um, you know, I guess you're calling it money, but if I've got an Aussie dollar, my Aussie dollars, an Aussie dollar in a week, in a month, in a year, sure, I might be able to buy, call it 10% less goods and services, but it's fundamentally far less volatile than, than Bitcoin. I mean, how do you sure. explain the volatility side of things? Yeah, so there's a few things to unpack there. So first of all, yeah, look, the volatility side, I mean, we could, I could always give you the rather um, bland answer that one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, but I don't think that's a very satisfying answer for new people coming in. Um, yes, it's volatile, but of course, that's, that's because we are still in a transitional stage of going between a fiat standard and a Bitcoin standard. And that overall, if you are concerned, it is volatile generally upwards, at least over four-year timescale. So I, I say to people at this point, Still consider it long-term savings. Yes, there are places you can spend it and there are more and more tools coming online that make it easier to spend. But where we're at now is we're essentially at the, still in the land grab phase. You've got this system whereby there's only 21 million, or rather 2.1 quadrillion subunits called Satoshis. Uh, I add that because that's also a concern for people. They'll also say, "How do I can't afford a, a, a Bitcoin. Bitcoin's too expensive now. So it's also yeah. necessary to explain to them that that's just a, look, that's just an arbitrary amount of Bitcoin. Um, a Bitcoin is actually is actually uh, a two hundred. Um, uh, what is it? Uh, hundred millions. Sorry, it's a hundred. <laughs> sorry, hundred hundred million satoshis. Yes, and the, yeah. so therefore the total number of actual subunits in Bitcoin is two point one quadrillion. That's where I was going with the two point one. Yeah, uh, and so. And of course, they're even divisible further on the Lightning Network, but let's not get bogged down in that right now. Yeah. The point is that there's 2.1 million, so 2.1 quadrillion subunits, and that is it. And in fact, there's a certain number of those that have a good chunk of those that have already been lost. So what you're getting there for is any Bitcoin that you can, as much Bitcoin as you can acquire now is going to be a fixed percentage of what I believe and what many of us believe is going to be the next standard for the next monetary standard of the world it's like buying a piece of land on 
Manhattan, Manhattan, whatever the island was called before it was known as Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And either one day that island is going to be New York or it's going to be, you know, Birdshit Island or something like that. (laughs) Yes. You know, um, and I think it's an asymmetric bet as to which way that's going to go. Um, I think at this point it's very unlikely that it's going to all turn turn back into an overmined, you know, an, 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 an overexploited and dead phosphate source, or yes. it's going to be the the financial asset, the back, the, the what's the word, the world reserve currency, basically. Sure. And I think there's reason to think about how that can end up being the world. It can be the world reserve currency. And so you'll get you're you're going for a fixed share of that, and there's not going to be any more. And so spending it at this point is like you, there's nothing else that's going to reward your deferral of gratification more right now than having a having a chunk of this of this future monetary system. Absolutely. And I, and I don't say that like in a Ponzi scheme type way. People often say, "Oh, isn't that like no?" Because like the people that are buying this don't have the view, or some people might, but generally the view here is. They're buying it and that's it. This is their money now. They're not buying it so that they can just go and dump it on you later on for more fiat or some other type of thing. It's like this is what they're actually selling their inferior money for a superior form of money. And that's that's the end. Now, they might well spend it as they would spend any other kind of money. But this is where they're now permanently forever going to be keeping their savings. Absolutely. I have so yeah, there were a couple of other points I think that you did ask me on, but uh... yeah, no, I think you've addressed them, and like I think the idea of talking to people about it as a form of long-term savings makes perfect sense. I've often used you know saying, look, if you're not going to be holding for four years, you're probably a trader, and most people who trade yeah, are, right. are losing. So, so the idea has had here, that long-term view, that low yeah. time preferences. I can't remember who's been coining that term, but. Yes, exactly. And so that, that is the way to deal with the volatility and from my perspective, frankly. No one has ever been like, has, if you don't, if you could have that kind of outlook over that range, well, the volatility never mattered. If the price goes down, then you're going to be able to get more of it, more of this finite thing. Because one way of, of handling that volatility is to dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Now there's, I know that's, there's various views on that. Um, but, uh, and so, but the people that were dollar cost averaging, if they had been dollar cost averaging from the very top of whichever it was, I think it was 69,000 US dollars mm-hmm. or was about 90 something thousand Australian at the time, and they had just kept dollar cost averaging, they were already up fiat wise, I must add, on their, on, the, on what they'd put in um, yeah. months back. Yeah. Certainly they are now. Um, because they they had a year to they had a well at least a good six months to accumulate at, at, at much lower prices and average that out, and you know no one has ever even if they just bought at the top and never bought anymore, uh, no one's ever been down on their purchasing power after you know two and a half to three years at most I think that's the maximum like worst case scenario after fourteen years that anyone could have been underwater, yeah. and then of course they've been very, uh, very rapidly propelled above the water Yeah. Um, from there. So, yeah, the volatility should be not a concern if you think of it in that way. Yeah. If you look at a chart, roughly speaking, since inception, it's been more or less like three years up, one year down. Three years up, one year down. And that's the kind yeah, of trend sort of, we've seen. Sort of, yeah, you got like one really sort of banger year. Then you have a sort of yeah, a down year and then... And then a flat year, 
And yeah. then another year it takes to sort of like, we're in the year now, I think, where we're sort of flat sideways, maybe up towards the old all-time high. Yeah. Totally. Oh, is that this, what, what is it, 20? Yeah, because, or is that, or no, sorry, this would be, on that time scale, this would be the sideways year, wouldn't it? 20. This could quite conceivably be the, this, yeah. 2021 was the, was, the, was the up year. 2022 was the, the down. down. So this, this is, is the maybe moderately green. Moderate, but it's so far the best green. performing asset in the, in the yeah. this year. And then for far. the next year, it's sort of return to old all time high. And then the year after that is your, you know, your blow off top. Um, yeah. There's a good chance, though, that given how predictable that pattern is getting, why would you wait? Yeah. If that's if that's if everyone starts like it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy if if people start to see that that's the predictable pattern and there are reason there are actually logical reasons as to why Bitcoin does adhere to that pattern due yeah. to something called the block reward halving which I'm not sure how how advanced your listeners are on understanding what that is but suffice it to say that the Bitcoin issuance schedule cuts in half every four years so there's now only half as much new Bitcoin being produced, uh, being minted by miners every four years. And that gets due to be cut in half in just over, or just about a year from now. And so that supply yeah. shock in itself is a big, uh, big component in a rising price later totally. on. Totally. All right. So let's shift gears to talk a little bit about your, um, your bugbear, um, yes. <laughs> the C word um crypto i know that uh, you and i chat a little bit about this and um i suppose you know as a broad mental framework how do you distinguish between bitcoin and every other token all right a lot of lot of distinctions so satoshi himself or all even in in uh in bitcointalk.org forums that was an early forum where a lot of uh discussion was had before before the conversation moved to things like reddit and twitter and so forth anyway he said these posts are still there that look once i invent this thing and once it's out there and shown to work and people have adopted it there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to lot going to come along and try to create their own copy of it or with perhaps with variations and that sort of thing in order to claim that there's that there's some point of difference that you buy their token so the first thing, of course, as to why they're all different is that they're not first. That Now, again, that sounds glib, but it's important because when you have the, you either have this concept of digital scarcity or you don't. And if there is to be digital scarcity, then it can only be invented once because so you only have one original invention of digital scarcity, and that is Bitcoin. And then the 20, 30, God knows how many there are now copies of this idea there's no shelling point. There's nothing to distinguish between any of them. So they are just going to continue to cannibalize and dilute the, their own value. And then you've got this, this uh, narrative that people come out with that, well, what if, they, well, what if they're better, better money or they add new features? Because they think of, see, they make the mistake of thinking of Bitcoin as merely a technology. And therefore, as a technology, they, they, they then conclude that a technology can be replaced obsoleted um but of course it's more than just a technology it's a it's a monetary paradigm shift and so as money bitcoin already has exactly and only and completely the properties that money needs to have and so this idea of well 
you know, what if something better comes along? Well, it, it assumes that those extra things that come along are necessary for it to be good money. And of course, they're not. They're trying to add things like, you know, of course, smart contract functionality or the other claim they might make. Well, they would say that their coin can do more transactions per second or it um, uh, or it's faster and all of these sorts of things. Um, what they don't tell you, though, is all of the compromises that they've had to make in order to add these features to it. And those compromises end up destroying the very thing that made Bitcoin a complete paradigm shift in what money is right from the start. And usually that comes down to destroying its centralization in one way or another, because that was the whole thing here. That was the whole that was the whole uh, thing that was created, as I mentioned right at the start, about having to have this kind of money that uh, that didn't have anyone in the middle. But of course, now that you all of these 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 tokens, they're issued by um, uh, by central people. They they use the buzzword decentralized, uh, but they they are not because of the compromises they had to make. So on the point of decentralization, what the that's one of the biggest compromises these altcoins as they it was, was the polite uh, the polite name for them uh were called uh is that they make the claim to it but they're really only using it as a buzzword because uh, let's take the case of you come out with another currency and you're claiming that it can do more transactions per second because this is one of the things that for years they were able to beat bitcoin over the head with this idea that well it can only do seven transactions per second uh, of course, uh, these uh, token peddlers like to always still pretend as though the Lightning Network doesn't exist, which solves this this problem. But okay, so they created uh, yeah quotation marks problem, as you say. Yes, exactly. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> even the moment that I was looking at Bitcoin, that was being said back in 2013. They were talking about the idea that it's never going to be the world's world currency because it can only do seven transactions per second. Yes. Um, so there was it was always thought right from the start that, that that would be solved with abstraction layering, or at least that was always put to being one of the solutions to that problem. And that's what and that dream that not well, that 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 has already now been met with the Lightning Network for um, this. And that's how that's how all systems have scaled in the past. You don't just try to plug all these extra features in the bottom layer. Like so this was an attempt by, for example, Bitcoin Cash to have much larger block sizes. There was a whole war fought in Bitcoin over this about increasing the block size until such time as that the big block people lost and then formed their own versions of Bitcoin. But that's one of, that's, I give that as an example of how someone might say that there's an extra feature here. We can do more transactions per second. Okay. But what's the result of that? The result of that is that now far fewer people could run a node at home. And that if you, if you decide to scale that way, just by, oh, I'm just going to make the blocks bigger so that we can have more transactions per second. Before you know it, you've only got Amazon-style data centers being able to act as nodes, and then you're not decentralized anymore. And so what does that mean? Well, the, that was the whole thing that was invented here, to get away from that kind of centralization. And so that was staunchly resisted, any move to increase the block size, because once you've increased the block size once, then there's nothing to really, you've set that precedent. There's nothing to stop it from just being used as a, a quick and dirty way of gaining more transaction capacity on into the future. You had no incentive to develop more innovative methods, such as the Lightning Network itself, which now means that on a second layer above Bitcoin, you could have thousands of transactions, maybe hundreds of thousands of transactions going back and forth, 
for every one transaction that actually settles on that main blockchain and uses up the seven, or I think it's actually now, again, through other optimizations like segregated witness, um, something like maybe 13 or 14 transactions per second. But the point is, is that for every one of these so-called improvements that are made, there is a compromise somewhere else. The other one is like, okay, well, what if we do, we could do all this other stuff on, on, on it, like smart contracts. Um, so that's Ethereum's thing. But what did it turn out all those smart contracts were being used for? It just, they were just ending up being used, uh, as Saif Dean um, eloquently puts it, uh, Ethereum is the, the mother arsehole from which the shitcoins are, are shat. I think something, put it someone like from, that. From whence all shitcoins are sprung, something to that effect, that's yeah. Right, from which the shitcoins spring, yes. <laughs> um, and that's right, all you were able to do is just create more and more Ponzi schemes because ultimately whenever these things have to integrate somewhere along the line in order to do something actually that's a positive good, rather than just redistributing money from one Ponzi scheme bag holder to another, is that you had to somehow connect back with the real world. And then you needed things called oracles, which were, um, which were just essentially trusted central parties that told you what the state of something in the real world was. And so your more astute listeners will have already figured out, well, if you're just trusting that oracle, uh, to make that decision about what's happening in the real world, well then, and, and therefore what happens on the smart contract, then why not just trust that Oracle to run or whoever's running that Oracle to run the whole system? And so again, the decentralization is lost. Even Ethereum itself, they, want, they were trying to be a better monetary system by saying, well, now we've got an even lower issue and schedule. Ultrasound money. Yeah, or ultrasound money, yeah. But of course, as easily as they could change their monetary policy to do that, well, as easily as someone in the future could decide to change it back. It's not an immutable monetary policy. Uh, and none of these things are, none of these other uh, uh, blockchain, so-called blockchain platforms are because they are run by third parties that have an inordinate amount of control over that system. Bitcoin doesn't have that. Now, people might hit back, what about Bitcoin Core and all that sort of thing? Bitcoin Core is just but one particular implementation of the Bitcoin client, anyone, there are other implementations that people are free to use if they don't like what, if someone, if Bitcoin Core couldn't make a change to Bitcoin's monetary policy um, any more than anybody else can. And if they did, and that policy, for example, said, oh, let's increase the supply because of X, Y, Z, because we have such a distributed uh, and decentralized um, collection of node runners all over the world, well, it would not be in the interests of the, of the tens of thousands of people running those nodes to upgrade the software to that change. Now, how many people, for example, are running in Ethereum? How many people are running nodes about from any of these other tokens, any of these other systems, the, the tens of thousands of them? Very few people. In fact, most of them only exist as tokens on an exchange. No one, is, no one is actually really directly interacting with any of their blockchains. You need they 32 ETH to run a node or to become okay. a validator. I mean, that's validator. just the beginning. Yeah. And you think to yourself, so, I mean, and the whole system of proof of stake is the bigger your stake, the more rewards you get. And you go like, um, isn't this exactly what we have today? I mean, what are you fixing? Yeah, yeah, they're not fixing anything. Well, I mean, and, the, and of course, that's the other thing. These things have always been solutions looking for problems to solve. Um, that brings me to the next thing, this idea of blockchain. So I want to make a distinction. Obviously, you've got your shit coins. They're just people that are flat out just trying to create tokens that, that they push forward as money. And they make certain claims 
you see the the shitfluencers. That's what we call the influencers. Yes. <laughs> I mean, these guys are not one of them is an honest person. They'll claim to something. I mean, there's varying degrees of their dishonesty, but ultimately they are beset by huge conflicts of interest. They're insiders. In the, they're either complete. They're either paid. They're either paid for their endorsements or for mentioning the coins right off the bat, or at the very least paid in an allocation of the token, which completely conflicts their interest in promoting them and saying nice things about them um, to their audiences. In yeah. fact, many of them, even their price schedule is public information. And then they, and then they say not financial advice. Well, you are giving financial advice. It is financial advice. You can't give essentially what is financial advice and then just somehow uh, erase all of that by then saying not financial advice anyway let's go not to go too far down there so let's let's focus on the blockchain piece so some people yeah. will say so to you yeah i'm with you, you i'm with you jp yeah but you had this what about supply chains yeah that's a well that was a classic one so this idea of blockchain it came along and i remember look they popped up in they started popping up in the various chat group forums um telegram groups twitter twitter groups that sort of thing um or twitter uh, on twitter rather and uh reddit and wherever else bitcoin was being talked about and and they popped up in the media as well and there was a, the usual sort of corporate types the sorts of people that whose ego might have been somewhat wounded by not having seen what others might have expected them to see in bitcoin and having missed out and so they came along and said oh look you know uh we th this bitcoin thing this currency that's not very interesting we don't need that pesky currency but the technology behind bitcoin that's interesting and so what they mean by that is particularly the blockchain technology so the blockchain technology underlying bitcoin that's where there might be something we could do with that and so they sought to separate the blockchain component from bitcoin and just use that on its own now, what's a blockchain, you might ask? Blockchain, it's really nothing more than an idiosyncratic data structure. It's what you would, it's or might be more technically described as an append-only database, a database whereby you have data, and the only thing you can do is add more data to the end of it. You can't change anything. Well, you're not supposed to be able to change anything further deeper in the chain, but of course you can, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the point is, is that, these guys all came along, these sort of corporate types came along and thought about how they might be able to exploit blockchain for commercial purposes without the pesky Bitcoin currency. What very few of them seem to be aware of, though, and because I've had this conversation with them, is that blockchain as a concept, as a data structure, has existed since 1991 or 1992. It was first proposed in an academic paper by a couple of guys, Harbour and Stornetta, way back then, and essentially on its own, found no practical applications. Its first practical application was Bitcoin. But Bitcoin wasn't just bringing blockchain into the, to the party. It was, bringing, it was bringing blockchain. It was bringing proof of Adam Back's proof of work. Uh, it was bringing uh, various forms of cryptography and a bunch of other technology. There's a great graphic out there somewhere, which, um, which I'm sure that... Uh, be able to find that shows just the sheer number of different components that came together to finally make bitcoin and make the dream of a completely decentralized form of money um, a reality um, and so this was decades worth of different components that came together of which blockchain was but one but now all of a sudden now that it finally found a use case these these people think that now like oh we're going to take it back out of bitcoin again and and think that it's useful but of course it isn't useful without proof of work because without the proof of work there's nothing to stop you from editing a block in the chain from a much 
earlier at a much earlier point in time and then just rewriting all of the blocks on top to match. The proof of work is what makes it extremely difficult to edit anything further back in time and rewrite all the blocks on top. That proof of work, by the way, that many of these same people are trying to tell you is, is unnecessary and harming the environment. So, yeah, the supply chains was just one example of something that could just as could just perfectly well be being done on a database, even the distributed database, if you wanted to uh, give some sort of fault tolerance to it and make it harder for one individual to tamper with it, have a distributed database. But the idea of using a blockchain is marketing and nothing more. It was just, here's a buzzword, here's something that's being made uh, prominent and famous through Bitcoin. And so there was an opportunity for all sorts of snake oil peddlers and grifters and marketeers to come on board and push this thing they even disastrously managed to push it onto the ASX to move their uh, to move their trading system onto onto a blockchain, and it failed miserably. Now, when I say failed miserably, it only failed from the point of view of the ASX. It didn't fail from the point of view of the legions of consultants and and blockchain blockchain consultants and uh, digital assets consultants and. Uh, and various other snake oil salesmen and parasites who were all in for their, they all got their share of that $250 million. So it was a boon for those guys, very successful. And I'm, and most of these guys, when you talk to them, they'll tell you in a, they'll almost tell you in a, in a, in a wink, wink, nudge, nudge sign of way that they know that, it, that they're on a hiding to nothing, but they've got to play the game. This is the game. You see they're all the big, the big fiat game that they're playing. So a lot of them have, when you talk to them on the quiet, We'll, we'll admit it. Yeah. But it's almost course, like the ESG game, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. kind of like the, the people playing it sort of know they're paying lip service to it more, more often than not and they don't really give a service. shit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And they say they like Bitcoin, but they'll never talk about it and kind of prefer that. I'm kind of come around to the idea that I prefer these people not talk about Bitcoin. Just, just leave it to the Bitcoiners, I think, because I think these people are bringing discredit to Bitcoin in a way because this stuff, this with their continued failures as bitcoiners or bitcoin i think suffers too much already from the conflation of these stupid dead-end ideas with something that is anything but that we still got we all we're already having to face the uphill battle of continually having to deconflate every one of these failures from bitcoin 100 percent um, yeah, and, and unfortunately to the untrained eye, as it were, it's, people yeah. tend to conflate the two and we're sort of and constantly up against that, it. That's, that's the education. And unfortunately, the people that are doing this conflation, these are the people that have the ear of government and they get the slots on the on they get the slots in the media to talk about this stuff. So the media is still uses the word that stupid word, meaningless word crypto. Um, to describe uh, this entire scene when that's not how it is at all. You've got crypto, you know, you've seen that sort of that, that, that meme. This is what the public thinks, right? They think of crypto as this big balloon and then Bitcoin mm. is a little balloon inside that, little circle inside that, where it's not like that at all. You've got crypto, which is a, an infinitely expanding potential bubble of things, all diluting one another, just like the fiat system is already doing to your money. Yeah. For example, Ethereum will never, I don't think Ethereum will ever reclaim its all-time high against Bitcoin like it did in 2017. Because since that came along, more of its narratives continue to get debunked and knocked over and fail. And then there are more and more smart contract blockchains coming out. Because they decided to compete on that technology level, 
well, then they are genuinely at risk of being replaced by better smart contract blockchains, which all and more and more and more of them that continue to dilute the market for smart contract blockchains. Whereas there's still only one Bitcoin, that bubble remains, that's 21 million. And so the bigger that economy gets, the more valuable everybody's share, in other words, how many Bitcoin you have, of everybody's share of that economy becomes more valuable. That Absolutely. doesn't happen. Crypto is a separate separate thing that's just going to continue to inflate and cannibalize itself um, and, and continue to be, look, I, there probably will be another, another irrational a blow up of those things, but the risks are, are, are not worth it. Um, and again, whatever money you get in, whatever money people think that they've made in that, it's just a loan because they, it all gets given back to the system when it all comes crashing down again. These things will just continue to pump and dump as the Ponzi schemes they are. These, the, the, the shitfluences, as, we, as I mentioned before, they like to use this term you might have heard called, uh, well, use cases is a buzzword, but uh, good projects, that's it, the good projects narrative. Mm. I'd have heard certain ones and oh, there are, it's not all shit coins. There are good, there are some good projects. Good voice. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. The good project. Okay, let's break projects. down. No one cares what the project is. It, you, you can have the best project in the world. At the end of the day, no one cares. It's just a narrative. It's, it's a plausible, it's a narrative. It's a red herring that gives plausible deniability for what is ultimately a Ponzi scheme because no one cares what the thing can do. All they care about is what they can buy it for and then what they can dump it back on the market for to get either more Bitcoin or more fiat. And yeah. that's distinctly different to Bitcoin. Yes, there are some people who use Bitcoin that way because they don't understand it. But for the hundreds, now the millions of actual people around the world that understand Bitcoin and are using it as their savings, this is their permanent money now. They're not using it to buy and sell to get more of either more of some other crypto or more fiat. I don't think there's anyone who gets more riled up about crypto <laughs> than me. And I think it might be you because you <laughs> uh, you've perhaps had a, a, a longer, you've had more, yeah. you've had to deal with it for far longer. But I think kind of to your point and just sort of winding down now, I thought, you know, there is a narrative that, yeah, the sh sure, there might be another so-called bull run in crypto, if you like. But I think there's also a sort of non-zero possibility that we'll never see another crypto bull run because they're going to get regulated into the ground. And That's, not, not only yeah. that, but you've also got the fact of, as you described, because Ethereum is doing what Luke Groman has called with regards to what the Fed's doing, riding uh, a horse with two asses. <laughs> you basically <laughs> have tried to become ultrasound money mm. and you've tried to become the sort of fastest transaction layer you've tried to become the smart contract layer of the world you didn't pick yep. a lane it's all centered around greed and the token value and every single design decision has been about how do we get number go up and i think that when it comes to crypto it the the collapse could be slow it could be rapid it could be it could happen in any number of ways, but I think for the average person, the more they just focus on the signal that we call Bitcoin and they just ignore the Ponzi's, the games, yeah. you know, the, the, the silliness of crypto that doesn't solve a single problem to date. There's not an actual problem that it actually solves. And so 
from that perspective, I remain really hopeful over the long run, but in the short term, you're going to continue to see endless amounts of silly buggers and yeah, that's just think, the nature of the I, game. I, I don't think any of these things, certainly the ones that have existed so far, they get their one big pump against Bitcoin. The first, so again, these things all follow the, the typical the, the typical four-year-long Bitcoin halving cycle I mentioned earlier in the pod. There's Again, they're all led by Bitcoin's rise. And so far, none of them, to my knowledge, have they've had the, the biggest pump they all had, certainly the ones that existed back then, was 2017. The last bull run, they didn't do as well against Bitcoin, and I think they're going to do even less well the third time round. The pumps are always hardest the first time because that's when they've got the most to do it. But you mentioned another interesting angle, and that is this one of, of regulation. And uh, Gary Gensler himself has come out and said, look, all of these other things are securities, and they are. They fit the definition of a security, especially Ethereum that you've mentioned uh, so far in, in terms of it's, uh, as a horse with two asses, as you, as you mentioned Um it has all of the properties of, secure, of a security, and its and its promoters are on video admitting how admitting that there's the, how they're selling it to the public, how it's being marketed, everything that gives it the properties as a security. A uh, completely different way in which than, than the way in which Bitcoin was distributed, a completely which was a completely fair distribution, unlike Ethereum with it with its seventy percent distribution. But nonetheless, as a security, this is why you've got the blockchain crowd so vigorously trying to get regulation. Bitcoin's not interested in regulation. It doesn't need regulation because it's not a security. It's not a security from the outset, it's just a commodity money. And so there's nothing there to regulate. And not, well, I mean, to the extent that it's regulated, its own algorithm regulates it. Doesn't That's it. On the other hand, if you are knowingly a security, when you these people, the people that are pushing this stuff, the blockchain lobby that are pushing this stuff, what they're really asking for is they're asking, you might have heard of them asking for, they want a regulatory safe haven. So what they're really looking for, they're not looking for actually any new regulations that helps regulate what they're doing. They are looking for exemptions from the existing regulation that's perfectly adequate to cover the, uh, the securities that they're pushing. There's already securities law that regulates all of this stuff. 100%. What they're really seeking is exemptions from existing securities laws, not more regulatory oversight so that people don't keep getting scammed. They don't, they don't care about that. They want, they know that the that certainly on the in the US, of course, as I said, Gary Gensler there mentioning how all of these things are securities except for Bitcoin. Uh, and they know that's coming here. I think if simply if these things are just declared the securities that they are, then you've already got the securities laws there to take care of them. And I think that's what the blockchain lobby is most worried about. And they want their they want their safe harbor and their exemptions. Hundred um, percent. Yeah, that's exactly the way it works. I mean, to the layperson, I would say, look, what the blockchain Australia are doing and various others is effectively saying to you know lawmakers and the like, hey, yeah. there are rules in place that relate to how one raises money. But guess what? We've got some technology that's so incredibly yeah, innovative. Yeah, we're using a data structure. So it's let's really interesting yeah. that we just want to kind of circumvent that. Oh, and if yeah. you don't, you're being silly because you're chasing away, and I'm putting this in uh, quotation yeah. marks, yeah. innovation. Sure, or, yeah. you know, you, it could create jobs. And now there's this whole narrative about how many jobs it'll create. And, and I think to myself, it's shameless. Reason. Yeah, that, and that's the nub of the real reason why they're trying to embrace, embrace blockchain because it gives them that innovation that they can claim to have so that they can essentially indulge in um, in what would otherwise, well, what's still essentially once we understand and see through the bullshit that these things are just securities are essentially uh, illegal capital raisings. 
That's um, all it is. I mean, I come from a property yeah. background and I'll say to people, here's an example. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur. I want to create a $100 million property fund. What do you think I have to do? How many yeah. regulatory hurdles do you think I will have to jump through to actually go and get that done? But do you know yeah. what I can do? I can put it on a blockchain. blockchain I can raise $100 yeah. million dollars within I'm innovating, you know, with the right yeah. crowd, with the right publicity, the right marketing, the right PR agencies. I've seen mm -hmm. this all happen. And I could raise it. I, and in, in that way, I can raise it globally. And guess what? I didn't have to disclose how much I have. I didn't have to disclose like what the rules of the game are. I can just put up some white paper that I copy pasted from some other project <laughs> and, yeah. and raise money from. And typically, people who should not be engaging. It's not the sophisticated investor who's engaging this. The sophisticated investors inv involved in this are insiders. Yes. The people yeah. who are ultimately yeah. what we would call exit liquidity is the retail. They're the people who just get dumped on by all the insiders who have yeah. a sort of outsized position relative to the poor plebs. Yeah, and it's also why Bitcoin was never interested. Bitcoiners were never interested in the regulation because not only was it doesn't require regulation, it's not. It doesn't see Bitcoin. Unlike these things, aren't using a blockchain to somehow circumvent or give a plausible denied plausible reason why they should they shouldn't be subject to securities laws. Unlike these other things, Bitcoin was designed simply not to be a security in the first place. So therefore, it was it would it never was at risk of being subject to these existing securities laws, and therefore. It, 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 no, no extra regulation for it was ever needed. The only regulation I suppose you could argue for might be regulation of the on-ramps and off-ramps themselves. But again, I, I don't know that there isn't existing laws on fraud and, 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 and things like that that cover a lot of this. Um, that's in place already. That's, that's all in, in place, place already. I, I wouldn't, I could, I could be willing to entertain though. There could be an argument for sort of some, some tightening up of, of rules and things around exchanges, uh, maybe, but that's not my area and I won't comment on that. But this idea that that sort of blockchain and, and the whole sort of all these other things need regulation, that's all about, as I said, just carving out exemptions so that so that people can use the plausible deniability of using a idiosyncratic data structure um, to get an ex to get an exemption from it all. So to enrich themselves yeah. at the end of the day. And to ultimately enrich themselves and just do what they've always been doing since security laws were created in the first place, which resulted from uh, the calamities of the, of the, de of the depression. Uh, Absolutely. Well, came existence around then. Well, um, on that very pleasant note, um, yeah, I, I could talk to you for hours about this. Um, <laughs> I, I as I said earlier, like, honestly, I don't know anyone who has so much fire in their belly when it comes to this stuff. And it's been <laughs> really, <laughs> it's been really awesome chatting to you. Um, I don't know Likewise, if you've got any sort of closing comments or, any, you know, if you want to steer people somewhere, uh, I know that you're sort of not a, a big promoter um, of your own work, but yeah, if there's anything you want to sort of share with the listeners, please go ahead. Sure. Well, uh, I'm JP underscore technology on Twitter. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, I host the Bitcoin Sydney meetups. We meet twice a month, the first Wednesday of, sorry, the second Wednesday of the month. We have a presentation format where we get uh, a member, someone to talk about some 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 something they they are, uh, some aspect of Bitcoin, and then the fourth Wednesday of the month where we just have a casual catch up and, and drinks. And uh, the whole purpose of that meetup, by the way, it was originally created as being a specifically Bitcoin only meetup. So it's not a crypto meetup; it's strictly Bitcoin only. I think we were one of the first. Uh, well, certainly, I think the first explicitly Bitcoin only meetup in Australia, which again emerged after the 
diarrhea of shit coinery. We went <laughs> 2017. Um, and uh, one of the earlier ones in the world that's Bitcoin only, because as I said, for a while there, everything turned into being all the Bitcoin things they were turned into crypto and blockchain. Yes. So um, that's what, so we've been steadfastly Bitcoin only um, yeah, since, since shortly after that stuff exploded. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah, I hope to chat to you again. Perhaps we'll see how the, the lay of the land looks like in a year. Maybe the, regulatory bombs would have exploded and um, we'll see where Bitcoin's sitting at that point. And uh, no doubt we will remain as tranquil and um, content in our Bitcoin holdings as, as ever. So yeah. Look forward to it, Dale. Thanks for having me on. Super. All right. Cheers then. Bye-bye. All right. So how'd you go with that? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made sense and that you got some value. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or ugly, or any questions, I'd really like to hear from you. Uh, get in touch via Twitter, at Dale21M for 21 million. And if you found the episode useful or valuable in any way, please consider subscribing, giving it a five-star review, or otherwise just sharing it with a friend. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I'm not here to tell you what to invest in. I'm simply here to make sure that if you're going to invest in crypto outside of Bitcoin, that you do so with your eyes wide open. Much love, friends. Appreciate you all. And I'll see you again soon. Cheers.